before uh, before we go to our prayer time, because of the events of the week, I wanted to switch things around and go back to Psalm 135. If you turn in your Bibles there. Psalm 135, and I'll read the first seven verses again. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord. The Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for his own possession, for I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Lord, as we spend some time together in your word, we ask that the Spirit be our teacher, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to behold wondrous things here and to ground our hearts and our minds and our souls in you and what you have given to us in the scriptures. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. It, it's not often that you you can have an introduction to a sermon where you simply begin by saying, you know. But that's kind of what this, this week was. Um, there were evacuations. Uh, about a third of Norfolk, it seemed, was evacuated for, uh, for overnight. Uh, I, I read somewhere that between 80 and 100,000 Nebraskans were evacuated, and that was as of Friday. There's been damage. There's been loss of life. Thanks be to God that loss of life has, has actually been very, very low, but there's still been loss of life. There are people who are looking at each other this morning wondering, what now? The damage has been widespread. The influence has been widespread earlier this morning. Fremont was still in trouble. Parts of Omaha were still in trouble and Nebraska City and it's, it's heading south and uh, eventually they're, they're thinking that uh, it's simply going to trace the, the Missouri River all the way to the Mississippi. There's road damage, there's bridge damage, there's infrastructure issues, there's power issues up at the lake and, and Spencer and Lynch and... Um, People at our, our church in, in Creighton uh, had gone up to Niobrara yesterday. A lot of damage in Niobrara because of the river and the ice. Uh, I saw a picture that uh, showed a piece of ice on 14, um, Highway 14, on the way to Niobrara that was the size of my Subaru. There are businesses that are gone. And there's, there's kind of four different responses that people in our world 
will make. Uh, many of them are simply going to deny there is no God. We're all on, we're on our own. It all evolved. It's all naturalistic circumstances. And uh, they're, they're just going to camp on maybe one day it'll be better. Another response is to doubt. All of this happened, but of course God couldn't do anything about it. God was kind of powerless. Nature just happens. And God is up there looking at us kind of like we would look at fish in an aquarium, kind of hoping the best, but basically powerless to do anything. The, the third is to accuse. We're going to hear accusations if you haven't already heard accusations. This isn't fair. It isn't right. God is being cruel. God is not being just. We deserve better. We, we don't deserve better. And the fourth response is, is to trust. The fourth response is simply to trust. It struck me this morning as we were driving up to Creighton that if the temperature had been 10 degrees less, we would be looking at two feet of snow. No broken roads, no broken bridges, maybe loss of life because that's a lot of snow. Power probably wouldn't have been out the way that it has been. We trust that our God is good and that he is just, that there are no maverick molecules but we need to be reminded of that. You, you hear me preach every week. You know that I believe in the sovereignty of God and the absolute control of God over all things. I need to be reminded when we come into events that way. So this morning we're going to look at these verses in, in Psalm 135. We don't know who wrote the psalm, but it's precious scripture. We have a command in verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord is actually the word hallelujah. We tend to use hallelujah as kind of a, as, as kind of a, a, a cry of praise. Something good happens and somebody will say, hallelujah. Well, hallelujah is actually a command. It, it, praise the Lord. When, you know, when I got saved in 1978, that was kind of one of the, that was the word. It was, it was praise the Lord and then your finger up in the air. Right? That, that's kind of past the way. That doesn't happen anymore. But praise the Lord is not, is, it's not praising God. Praise of the Lord is a command to praise God. The word praise means to vocally extol the greatness of God. It means to declare his greatness, to list his character, to list his wonders. If all of us just stopped right now and we took until dinner time to write down every attribute of God, every aspect of God's nature, every aspect of God's character, everything that God has ever done. We could, we could go for hours and then put, put all of that together in one list, get rid of the duplicates, and, and we might have hundreds of things on that list and we would be nowhere near exhausting the character and the nature of God. Our job giving praise is to vocally praise God. All of you know, well, maybe she doesn't, but you will this morning. All of you know the opening line to Sonnet 43 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That's what praise is. How do we love our God? Well, let, let's, let's count the ways. That's what praise does. That's what praise is. Who's commanded to praise the Lord? Verses 1 and, and then 2. Praise him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts 
of the house of our God. When, when the writer wrote these words, this was a reference to the priests and the Levites. It was a reference to those who served in the temple, in the tab- tabernacle. But in Christ, under the new covenant, we are, all of us, royal, a royal priesthood. He has created a kingdom of priests. We are, uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9, says we are a spiritual house for a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a, a, uh, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And, and we are that so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's actually maybe even thinking about Psalm 135. Praise the Lord, you servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. In Christ, every man and woman is a priest in the house of God and is intended to exalt him vocally in the world. That's something that that might be more difficult for us to do. We can hang on to that praise in, in our hearts. We can gather together with other believers and praise him. Although I don't think any of us had had any really damaging or tragic circumstances. But we know when we're dealing with people with tragedy, we even want to be gentle then. But we're to continue to exalt our God. Why? Well, because of his nature and his character. Look at verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, uh, is a reference to his nature. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely, is a reference to his character. Those words good and lovely are, are related. They're a little bit synonymous. There's a little overlap. Both of them mean something that is desirable or pleasant or pleasing or deserving of esteem and respect. Good emphasizes the inherent goodness of God himself. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. If you're ever confused, rule one is God is good and God is just. Rule two is refer to rule one. God is good, God is just. The word lovely, I think, emphasizes the longing of our hearts, the attractiveness of him to us. Now, if we're honest, much of the time, some of the time, most of the time, you can fill in the adjective yourself. We don't begin with him. When we have really, really thrilling, exciting, wonderful news, we often don't begin with God. When we have terrible news, we often don't begin with God. We reach for other things. Especially when there's been a tragedy. Especially when there's a hard circumstance that we have to deal with or help others walk through. And often it's only after we have looked to this and looked to that and looked to the other that we realize they fail us. That there's no hope in those things. There's no fulfillment in those things. There's no joy in those things. All of which have to do with this world. And so eventually uh, God kind of lets us give that up. And we find that we have empty hands. And then we look at our God and we find that he is altogether lovely. That he is desirable. That he's actually what our hearts long for. Now we speak of the greatness 
and the goodness of our, of, of our Lord. But I want you to think about this. We also sing of those things. We are the only creature that sings. Now, we're in the bird room. We're in the bird library. There's birds on books on birds, and there's even a garden out there with a squirrel. But eventually, he'll become a bird. And people will say birds sing, but birds don't sing. That's just how they communicate. People might say whales sing, but whales don't sing. That's just how they speak. That's just how they communicate with one another. We speak and we sing. God made us that way. We modulate our voices. I used to be better at modulating our voices. We follow melodies. We sing in unison. And there's this interesting thing that happens. When we sing, it causes what used to be called a thrill. That's that's not what thrill means anymore. But thrill used to mean this kind of physical response of enthusiasm and excitement. And I think that the Lord gave us singing so that we could take what is true in our minds, speak and sing what we believe, and join our minds and our souls and our bodies. Because ultimately, we're not just spirits. Ultimately, we are flesh and blood. He made us that way. Singing is the way that God has designed to join our our minds and bodies and souls together in worship. So what are we to do? We are to praise the Lord because we are his servants. We are to praise him because his character is good and or his nature is good and his character is lovely and what if the world disagrees what if the world disagrees people this morning if you said i'm praising god for this past week would either say that we're insane or that we're deceived or we're deluded in some way or what we do doesn't make sense or they would say yeah you're just escaping the real world you're just going into this kind of fantasy thing But really what we're doing is we're responding to our relationship with him. Look in verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Why should we praise the Lord? Why should we hallelujah? Because God has chosen us. He chose Jacob and Israel. Both of those are references to the nation And he has chosen us. Peter wrote, we are a chosen race. He has chosen us for himself. That's the the wonderful thing. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. It doesn't say the Lord has chosen Jacob for destruction and Israel for extermination. Peter opens his first letter with these words. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Who are chosen. And then he he says that this choosing is Trinitarian. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's foreknowledge is not a passive knowledge. (coughs) Excuse me. God's foreknowledge is not a passive knowledge about. It's not that he's looking through the corridors of time and seeing this will take place. God's foreknowledge is is a verb. It's what he does. When 
uh, after, uh, after the, the murder of Abel at the end of Genesis 4, it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's the word know and God foreknows. That means that he actively has a relationship with us before we're part of that relationship. And what we see in Romans 8 is that that's the very first thing is that God foreknew us. In eternity past, he looked to an eternity future and had a relationship with us and has a relationship with us at that time, even though in history he's bringing us along to that point. But he's already there because he's outside of time. So God has chosen us. It says in 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, setting us aside, separating us from the world and making us his, in order to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. God chose us in Christ and the Holy Spirit separated us out so that we would live under his lordship in holiness and be clean. He's chosen us for a relationship with himself. Being chosen is a huge, huge deal. Why should we praise the Lord? Because he chose us. Because he has made himself our God in our experience. He is the God that is. He's the God of the whole universe. He is the only God that is. He's the God of all the rebels and all the sinners in the world. But he has made himself our God and made us his people. So of course we we praise him. And of course we praise him regardless of our circumstances. It's right to do that because of who he is. Look at verse 5. The psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. You'll maybe see that the first Lord is in capitals, which tells us that it's not a title, it's the name Yahweh. And the second Lord is not in all capitals, it's in regular capital case, which tells us that it's not his name, but a title. So Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is God. God is a title. A description, but Yahweh is a personal name. He has given us his name. And he is above all gods. Now, there aren't any other gods. I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. There are no other gods. He's already said that. He's, he, he's made that clear going back to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing but God when he created the heavens and the earth. There will never be any gods but him. None before, none during, none after. He makes that abundantly clear in Scripture. So why does the psalmist say our Lord is above all gods? I think it's, even though he didn't have Romans, I think it's because of what Romans chapter 1 says. Romans 1, verses 23, uh, 21 to 23, and then verse 25 says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Because we're born spiritually dead because we're born separated from God but we are created in the image of God we look for something to worship and if we don't find something to worship 
we'll make something to worship. And by the way, when we look to find something to worship, we never want to worship the actual God who is. That's part of the rebellion. But, but people, parents, or family, or friends, or cultures will present us with a false God and say, here's the God that you worship. And people embrace that, and people create their own gods. One of the most amusing parts of the Old Testament is, uh, did, did you ever figure out where that was? Okay, that's okay. In, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about the man who goes and cuts down a tree. And he takes half the wood f- from the tree and he carves it into a god to worship. And he takes the other half of the wood from a tree and he builds a fire to cook his food. And that man believes that the half of the tree that he burns is completely under his control. He is, if, if you'll excuse this, he is God over that tree or over that part of the tree. But he believes that the other part of the tree that he made into an idol is God over him. That's insane. It's insane, but people do that all the time. So when we sing, we're not singing our praises. We're not singing the praises of humanity or of rain gods or snow gods or wind gods. We're, we're praising the name and the character and the nature and the glory of the one true God who is over all. How far does his sovereignty extend? We'll look at verses 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. You could just finish the Bible right there. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. So the psalmist gives us the entire spectrum of creation. From the highest peak of heaven, to the earth, to the seas, to the deeps. The the deeps not being deeper seas. The deeps being the places so low we can't imagine ever getting to them. God is sovereign over all of that. And whatever he pleases, he does. And and he even says in verse 7, he causes the vapors. That's probably clouds is the sense. He causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. So what we observed last week and what we experienced last week was all filtered through the hands of God. It all took place through his decree. Now, you you know that I'm not fond of of arguments that don't come from Scripture, and and I'm especially not fond of arguments that just appeal to emotion, but but I'm going to offer you one just as a point of thought, not as proof, but just as a point of thought. If, if you're tempted to think, I don't want to believe in a God who could have controlled all that last week and didn't stop it. Does it make you more comfortable to believe in a God who couldn't control it? Does it give you more security to say my God's really a nice God, but a little pathetic? Is it more comforting to say when the tragedy happens, the tragedy happens because God couldn't do anything about it? Or is it better to say God has a purpose for everything that he does and everything that he permits? And what he permits is never about the thing that he permits. 
the rain that we had that caused the, the snow to melt, that caused the rivers to flood, was not about rain causing snow to melt and causing rivers to flood. Our, our God had purposes in there for his glory and for the ultimate purpose of all creation. As small as that event really was on the face of this earth, just a brief moment of time, he has a purpose for it. I can't tell you what that purpose is. There are people who's, who will say, if you don't know what the purpose is, you can't say that there was a purpose, which is just silly. That if I can't understand what the infinite God does, there must not be an infinite God, then he wouldn't be infinite if I could understand him. In the ancient world, when one nation defeated another nation, when Assyria defeated Israel, for instance, the, the victor assumed they won because their gods were better than the loser's gods. There are people in our world who hate the idea that God could have done something to stop everything that happened this week and didn't. And I understand that. They're in rebellion. But there are Christians, people who really do genuinely love the Lord, who hate the idea that God could have done something and didn't. And that I don't get. That I don't get. I do, but I don't. I I do because I, I need to know that God is going to take care of me no matter what. And when things like that happen, it almost feels like he's not taking care of me. But I don't get it because God taking care of me is never about this moment and this day and what happens here in Norfolk, Nebraska at the Elkhorn Valley Museum in the bird room. It's, it's about eternity. It's about eternity. There was a point when Rabshakeh, the, the general of the Assyrian army, stood outside of Jerusalem. We see this in Isaiah 36 verses 18 to 20, he stood outside Jerusalem and cried out, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. And then he says, has any one of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand? That the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand. In other words, we defeated all these nations because our gods are better and your God is pathetic. And we're going to defeat you because our gods are better and your God is pathetic but what Isaiah 10.5 says is that Assyria was a rod or a staff in the hand of God that he brought against his people Israel to correct them and discipline them and punish them for their idolatry. God reached over and he picked up Assyria like a belt, like a, the wooden spoon we used to use with our son until he broke it. God's sovereignty is utterly unlimited. He does what it pleases in heaven, on earth, in the oceans, in the deepest places. Somebody might say, okay, that's fine. That's over things. That's not over people. 
Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God is God. He does what he likes. He completely cancels out the plans of the nations. He frustrates them. That means he overrides them. They're going to do what he intends for them to do. And the same God who rules over every aspect of human behavior rules over the clouds and the lightning and the wind. And this troubles people. This troubles people. But it should comfort us. There are terrible things that happen. And the idea that God is powerless over those terrible things is no comfort. If our God is powerless over those things, we need to find the God who is. We're in big trouble. A number of years ago, R.C. Sproul said this, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign... He is not God. So our, our job as Christians is actually pretty simple, and it's pretty clear. We're to trust the Lord regardless of circumstances. And he provides us all kinds of circumstances to test our resolve, to teach us whether we trust him, to show us where we're not trusting him so that we can repent of that. We can turn away and say, you're right, you're God. You're, you're God when things are good, you're God when things are bad. You're God when I can clearly see the path out in front of me and it's a great road. You're God when I can't see anything out in front of me. And the road is terrifying. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you, Lord, that you exceed our expectations. We thank you that you can't be boxed in. You can't be made to dance according to the tune we play. There is no power that exceeds yours. And that tells us that even in the moments when we don't know what's happening or why, when we don't know what the outcome will be in this life, we know that the outcome in eternity will be your glory and the good of your people. And so, Lord, we come to pray to lift up those who have suffered we are our communities those who have been displaced and suffered loss and to pray for the families of those who have been injured or are missing or have died <coughs> to lift up those who are being impacted even right now being evacuated right now further south of us and to give you thanks for your protection over us. To give you thanks for 
motivating people to help and to be available. Thanksgiving that things weren't worse than they were. And to ask, Lord, that you would grant us opportunities to help, opportunities to pray, opportunities to share and to give, opportunities to to serve, and opportunities to share the gospel. Thank you for your love. We thank you for your graciousness to us. Let's take some time and and, uh, pray together. Thank you for your sovereignty.